We're going to turn together to the passage that Phil will be speaking from. It's Romans chapter 2. If you have the Red Church Bibles, it's page 1129. Romans chapter 2. And we're going to be reading verses 12 to 29. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the, by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are, are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Let's pray for Phil as he comes up. Thank you, Lord, for your living word. We pray as Phil opens it to us that you will speak through him and Lord you will bring to our hearts truths that will change us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for that Dave um, and for reading that out to us. If you could have it open to you, uh, open in front of you, that would be really helpful. Um, 
that would be good as well. If you've not got a Bible, can you just, and, and have the, the guts, just put your hand up. Can you, can you just indicate that? That would be really helpful if, you would, if you'd like to follow with me. If not, that's great. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay, so this bit of the Bible that we've just read is a passage that comes from a historical letter um, uh, written by a man called Paul in the, to the earliest church in Rome. The whole section of this book of Romans that we've been looking at for the last three weeks now is a bit like following an imaginary conversation with a bunch of neighbors over the fence. That's how you kind of put it in your head, and that's how we're going to frame it. So it works to imagine that two weeks ago, Paul got chatting to his neighbors, just a a bunch of them having a barbecue, and they look over the fence, they go, Oh, hello, neighbor. Have you just moved in? And he goes, yeah, thank you. Just um, tending the roses, as ministers do. And, um, and, and, they, and they go, okay, so where are you from? And he kind of explains. They get into this chat about faith and religion. Barbecues are kind of boiling away and, or frying away, and, and they get into this chat. And he gets to explain that very first section we saw three weeks ago, how all rebels against God... Um, are, are, are rebels because of their attitude towards God. In other words, he's saying, actually, everyone's a rebel, everyone's a sinner. We're not right with God. And in this way, in that passage, he was saying God wants us to understand that we all need Jesus because people like us are constantly wanting God to work around us, constantly wanting God to do things our way, and constantly demanding his, uh, his action according to our times and our desired outcomes. Effectively, being a rebel means expecting God to do God our way rejecting how he wants us to relate to him and instead wanting him to relate to us on our terms. And because of this attitude towards God, that attitude, by the way, is called sin, God allows the consequences of sin to play out. In other words, if we rebel against God, cut him out of the picture, God will say, that's okay. I will cut myself out of your picture and allow your sinful attitude to play out in its entirety. You will live according to your rules. You will die according to your rules. And I will respect your wish to reject me and not live with me. To live in sin, says Paul, is exceptionally sad. And repeatedly in this whole book, we're told that we need Jesus to rescue us from that attitude of sin. But then we saw last week that Paul explains a situation uh, that, that, uh, sorry, Paul explains another situation in, in response to an objection. You have to imagine the neighbor has gone, wow, that's pretty harsh about the rebels. But thankfully, Paul, um, we're not like them. Uh, we're, we're pretty good, actually. We've, you know, as you can see, we've got our nice little semi-detached house, our barbecue and the car in the drive, and we go to work every day. We live our lives, pay our taxes. We're good people. We're not like your classical rebels. Thanks. Phew. And Paul goes, I'm sorry, no. As we saw last week, the reality is that the self-righteous, that kind of person who think, um, uh, who think this way are actually judging the rebels whilst still doing the same things, even in secret. In other words, what he, says, what he said last week, what we saw from what he said last week was, however good we are, We still need God's way of being right with God. 
So having talked about the rebel and the self-righteous, and having seen that they cannot be right with God, it's almost as if the neighbors hunker down for a little natter on the other side of the fence. And, and Paul's kind of waiting there, and then he hears this. And then they pop up with a new objection concerning God's law. So they ask Paul, what about people who don't even have the law or keep the law? Aren't they right with God? That's his question. Aren't they right with God? And Paul says in this passage, not even them. No one. Not the rebel, not the self-righteous. As we saw last week, and those who don't know the law, and even those who follow the law, as we're about to see today, no one can make themselves right with God. So this is a meaty passage, and we're going to look first at the principle that, God, that, that Paul lays down, and then we'll address the way it plays out with those who don't know the law and those who do know the law. So this is the big principle, and it's kind of what everything hangs off. Being right with God is not about a relationship with the law. It's, out, it's about a relationship with God. Being right with God is not about a relationship with the law. It's about a relationship with God. Look at verse 12 and 13 with me. So verse 12 says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The big word to spot in these verses is the word law. This is the first time in the letter that Paul mentions that word. And what he means by it is the law of Moses. In other words, the written commandments from God that established a relationship between the Jews and their God. So Paul spots two kinds of people here. The Gentile, the non-Jew, who has no idea of the law. And then the religious Jews who know the law and see themselves as right with God because they live it. But the warning here is neither will be seen as righteous. Both the person who lives away from the law and who lives under it will be judged. Why? Because being right with God is not about a relationship with the law. It's about a relationship with God. So look at verse 13. This is where he kind of really underlines it. For it is not those who hear the Lord who are the law who are righteous in God's sight but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So he's kind of pointing out the obvious. There's a difference between hearing someone and obeying someone. It's it's like those moments in in every family. I'm sure you've had this and and possibly are still a bit bitter by it. Um, But what happens is everybody... uh, So in family life, you you kind of uh, scream up the stairs. Can you help set the table for dinner. Can you help set the table for dinner? And what normally happens, happens in in my family anyway, is that everyone shouts back, yes, dad. And most of the time they appear one by one to give a hand setting the table. Often though, I'm not going to tell you who, but one person shouts back, yes, dad, but they don't appear for a while until miraculously they do appear the minute the table has been laid. That person is an illustration of someone who hears but doesn't obey. They've listened to the instruction. They've shouted, yes, I hear you, but they've not obeyed. They've obeyed on their own terms. They've come down to lay the table according to their own rules. And in the same way, here is the warning. There will be many religious people who hear the law. They will seem very holy. They will seem very righteous by the way they live out the law. But they will not obey it according to God's ways, 
they'll obey the law on their own terms. And Paul wants his Jewish readers to get this because they are in most danger of this. They know the law, but they live out the law in their own way, on their terms, not in relationship with God. On the other hand, people who know God and personally relate to him as their God, listen to God's law and obey it. Obey it here is a shorthand for following Jesus on his terms. And that kind of person will be recognizable by the way their relationship with God affects their behavior and life. So this is the big principle. Being right with God is not about relationship with the law. It's about relationship with the God. We can have the law. We can hear the law. We can look like we're being very religious and very righteous by obeying it to the letter according to our ways. But actually we're not obeying it, really. The spirit of the law says, I bring you into a relationship with God. That's what Paul wants us to get here. Hang on, says one of the neighbors. But there are a bunch of people who can't know God because they don't have the law. How can God judge them by his laws when there's no hope of them knowing God's standards? And that's the first objection. This, this, let me just explain. The neighbors aren't actually in the passage, okay? I'm just using them as a tool to help us understand uh, the, the, the flow of the argument. So the, the neighbor kind of objects. This is the first objection. What about the person who doesn't have the law? How can they even obey? How can they see God? Well, look at verse 14 to 16 with me. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law... They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. So Paul starts off by showing that even though those Gentile unbelievers don't have the written law of Moses, God's laws are still written on their hearts. And we see that all the time. You know, at school, at break time, one kid opens their lunchbox and says to another, I'll give you my apple if you give me your banana. It's a like-for-like swap, a fair exchange. It's also a code, a set of rules, a kind of unwritten law that just exists. And they both obey it, even though that law is never stated. Thou shalt give your banana if he giveth thine his apple, whatever. Do you know what I mean? The swap. Fair swap. It's an unwritten law, but it exists. It's written on each of our hearts. So even when someone doesn't believe in God, does something that God wants because it's the right thing to do, they show that God's laws are written on their hearts. So like the rebel, like the unbeliever, this, like the rebel, like the self-righteous, this unbeliever apart from the law lives life suppressing the truth about God and rejecting him, but still deep down knows the laws of God and lives them. Do you see that? Paul also says everyone has a conscience in verse 15. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Those times when we wake up in the middle of the night And remember something bad we did decades ago, as if it were yesterday. That is our conscience accusing us of wrongdoing. 
And those times when we helped the little old lady across the road had to get it in this week. Well, we feel good about it. That's our conscience commending us. So even the way our conscience works is confirmation that we have the law of God written on our heart, telling us what is right, telling us what is wrong. So there is no excuse. And that's the warning of the gospel. Look at verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Paul is saying that one day the whole gospel will be fulfilled, will be completed. In other words, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus is coming again. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And all people will be judged equally and fairly by Jesus, who will be the judge of our secrets. And that is the whole gospel message. And the point that Paul is making is that no one can say, I didn't know. No one can claim diplomatic immunity from Christ's judgment, because even those who reject the notion of God have the law of God written on their hearts. Their consciences know it. Their consciences testify to it. And it might be this morning that you put yourself in that bracket. I'm, I'm an ignorant of the law unbeliever. I don't believe in God. I don't accept the notion of God. I don't understand why you're so passionate about God. I don't get your, your ways. It's just alien to me. Well, here's the good news of Jesus. Jesus, the coming judge of the world, has written his law on your heart. And the question is, will you humbly accept him as your king this morning? Will you ask him for forgiveness? Will you ask him for his love and his strength to obey him and know him because he is your king? It's a tough gig, I get it. But let me tell you this, the tougher gig will be to reject him today and face him tomorrow when he comes in judgment. The invitation here, the implied invitation, is will you see the way you, you, you rebel against him and how much you need him? Well, the neighbor has one more objection before he goes in uh, to have his barbecue. And he says to Paul, if the rebel isn't righteous, and the self-righteous aren't righteous, and the ignorant of the law unbeliever is, isn't righteous... What about the truly religious? The Jew who's been given God's law and knows it off by heart. Surely they can brag about being right before God through obeying the law. And that brings us to that second objection. What about the person who does have the law? And really what's happening here is Paul is doing two things. One, he's, he's trying to address objections that people have in their hearts to say, I don't need Jesus. So the person who, who is ignorant of the law and, and an unbeliever, they go, well, I don't believe in all that rubbish. I, I, you know, it's just not me. And they expect to arrive on Judgment Day and go, well, you know, I, I just didn't, didn't really get it, you know. God, I'll, you just have to take me as I am. And, and the neighbor's kind of going, well, what about the truly righteous person? And Paul's going, well, no, I'm sorry, not even the person who obeys the law to the primary letter has a place in righteousness. 
They're not right before God. And what he's doing is he's saying everybody in this universe who is ever born has no reason to say in and of myself, I am right before God. He's leveling the playing field. So that everybody is exactly on the same level. No one can say, because of who I am, what I am, what I've done, how I've done it, because of anything, I am not right. And this is the last pin that he's knocking down. The person who says, I'm right because I'm religious. I am considerably holier than that. This is the last pin. The last person to be knocked down. And please, it's a joy. Please understand it's a joy. If you've said these three weeks have been harsh, they have been harsh because they've been knocking down our inherent desire to be right with God on our terms. And what he does is he says, no, we've got to be right with God on God's terms. And if you think you can be right with God by obeying his law, it's not going to happen. And this is why he says, objection to what about the person who does not have the law. It's as if he addresses the Jews directly. Directly look at verse 17. If you, if, you, if you call yourself a Jew, he was once a Jew, he was once a Jew of Jews, he was once the most educated Jew in his society. He was, he was touted to be the, the, the chief priest one day. Under Gamaliel, who was chief priest, he was taught, and he was like, he was like the, the cleverest, the most amazing, most self-righteous Jew that you had ever come across. And he, he declares it elsewhere in Galatians. So in verse 17, he highlights the fact that, that the Jews were, were, were proud of their Jewishness, proud, proud of their, their nationhood. And he says, though, that the special relationship with God that the Jews had through the law also made them proud of their ethics, their, their morality. So look at verse 18 to 20. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instruction for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. It's a kind of exaggeration. He's, he's not saying there's anything wrong with being a Jew. What is wrong with them is that they were bragging about the, this. They were saying, we are lights to the blind. We are instructors to the foolish. You're you're just little children. Now just gather around and let me tell you about how to be right with God because I am considerably holier than thou. He says the content of the law is good, but using the law to justify ourselves, to make us right with God, leads only to death. Why? Because you can't live out consistently what you preach. And he shows them this by showing their hypocrisy. He follows that with a list of rhetorical questions in in verse 21 to 23. And they all point to sins that that basically undo their righteousness. You then, verse 21, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, if you preach, are you not practicing what you preach? Oh, you preach against stealing, do you steal? Actually, yes, I do, Paul. You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? If you looked at my mind, yes. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? A technical one, just trust me, yes I do. 
You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And then it ends with this damning verse in 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. That verse rams home the point that the Gentiles will look at the Jews' hypocrisy, telling everybody to obey the law but refusing to see their own sin, and think that their God is rubbish to advocate such hypocrisy. And by saying that, your God is rubbish because he advocates hypocrisy. They blaspheme because they think badly of their God. So Paul's saying, keeping the law to keep us right with God will always fail. We will never be good enough. We will only forever be condemning ourselves because somewhere, either in our actions or in our thoughts, we will break the law and prove ourselves lawbreakers and hypocrites. Not even the Jew, not even the righteous, because they've got the law of Moses, can be right before God. And for us this morning, this has to be a sobering warning, particularly for us who have been uh, uh, brought up in a Christian culture, because it's easy to slip into being a, a moralist, having a religious code to live by, being the means by which we think we're right with God. Moralism happens when Jesus, as our saviour, begins to slip off the radar and we begin to rely on our nationality or rely on our law-keeping. Or we say, well, I've been to church since I was seven. I wandered away in my teens, but now, teens, but now I'm back in church, so I'm fine. Whenever we rely on our actions or our profession or our, uh, profession or our, ident- our identity, more than the blood of Christ to make us right with God, then we are functioning as moralists. We're bragging about something other than Jesus. And we need to repent of it. And for all of us here this morning, this passage warns us that moralism leads to hypocrisy. Moralism leads to insisting on a view of the Bible where certain behaviors and traditions become more important than the grace of God. And it's really quick to happen. So how do we know that that is us? Well, it happens when we hear this challenge and we hope the person over there is listening because they're the moralist who needs this. Be warned if that's us. Be warned if that's us. Because if we are doing that, if we're saying, I hope so-and-so is listening to this challenge of moralism, then we need to hear it more than them. Because the danger is, we are by far and away the worst moralist. So keeping the law will not save us. No one is righteous before God. So going back to that chat over the fence, just as the neighbour turns to leave for his burger feeling like there's no hope for anyone. Paul says, hang on a minute. Just, just hang on. One more thing. One thing. I want you just to listen to what I'm going to say now. Because there is hope. There's a way that does lead to righteousness. A righteousness that is not about actions, but about our hearts. And that's the final point this morning, the final word. The heart of the matter the heart of the matter. 
Look at verse 28 to 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You see, the Jews believed that their circumcision contributed something to their salvation. Circumcision was an operation that Jews would perform on their baby boys of eight days old to cut off the foreskin of the boy's penis. And they did this because it was an outward national sign of their inward commitment to God. But they'd come to rely on it as a kind of passport into God's favor. I'm circumcised, therefore I'm right with God. But Paul says that circumcision is more than an action. It's a picture of what must happen to the heart. Circumcision was both symbolic of being set aside as God's people and also as, uh, uh, also symbolic of an exposed, intimate vulnerability towards God. So Paul says if you want to know God, you have to have that circumcision, circumcision not of the body, but of your heart. Your heart has to be set aside and devoted to God. It has to be vulnerable before God. How does that happen? Well, circumcision of the heart happens when you realize how much you need God to make you righteous. When you realize we're all on the same level playing field before God. Perhaps you've been coming to church for years thinking that's what makes you right with God. Perhaps you think you're right with God because you're married to a Christian. Perhaps it might be that you once said a prayer and really meant it at the time, but that commitment never really included declaring Jesus as your king and following him above all things. Perhaps you've thought that your Bible reading or your good lifestyle counts before God to make you right with him. Well, can you see how all these things can become outward signs that we think we're right with God. But inwardly, our hearts might not have changed. A vulnerable heart starts with confession and repentance. It is humility, really, isn't it? Lord God, I'm not good, good, good in and of myself. I'm not right with you because of what I do or because of my status or because of, of, of my, my, my obedience to your law. I need to be exposed and right with God because of Jesus. That's where a vulnerability creeps into our hearts. That's where we begin to know God and obey him because he is him. And it's, it's, it's irony. When we stop trying to fix our lack of righteousness by our own efforts and instead throw ourselves on the mercy of God, that's when we find a righteousness that comes through Jesus. And it's a righteousness that brings us into a relationship with God. I don't know what the neighbor across the fence thought of that. We'll never find out because they didn't exist. But the reality is is we are that neighbor 
Paul's writing this to us. Because when we talk to God with vulnerability, with that sense of, oh, I need you, Lord God, more than I need my actions, my status, more than I need whatever I do, we can accept that we're like the rebel, the outright rejecter of God. We can accept we're like the self-righteous. We like to judge others because by it we feel better. We're like the ignorant of the law unbeliever. We try and pin our hopes on other things. And we're like the legalist. So often we'll pin our hopes on the granny across the road. When we realize we're like them, we realize we're like everyone in this world. We realize we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Not just to make a commitment to him, but to make a commitment for life. Our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole souls given over to following him, serving him, loving him. We need him in our lives. We need him in our death. We need him at judgment day. We need him in eternity. We need Jesus. And I hope, I really hope, I know it's been a tough old passage. Imagine having to try and prepare this sermon. But it is hopeful, isn't it? Because God doesn't leave us on the level playing field. He becomes one of us. And as we work through the book of Romans, we'll see how joyful and wonderful and rich and deep and loving that truly is. Let's pray. Dear Father God, our confession to you this morning is that we are no better than anyone in this world, literally anyone in this world, because everyone in this world is the rebel, the self-righteous, the ignorant of the law, unbeliever, the legalist. Lord God, we so, so, so need you. We need Jesus. And Father God, as Paul has spoken to us May we respond, may we examine ourselves for our rebellion, for our self-righteousness, for our legalism, for our ignorant of the law, unbelief, excuses. Lord God, may we examine ourselves and cry out to you how we need Jesus. May we confess our sin so that you might forgive us and make us right with you because of him. Oh, Father God, humbly accept our praise and our prayer this morning. Accept our lives. Take us and may we live in relationship with you for your glory's sake. Amen.